Good morning. Last week we introduced a group of people known as the Magi, and today we're going to continue their story. And when we left it last week, it was kind of like a a good cliffhanger at the end of a of a TV show. If you're into squishy sounds, that might be like The Walking Dead for you. Um, or if you're into to things that are a little more sophisticated, it might be Downton Abbey. Uh, or if you're just uh, dating yourself and really liked your childhood, then it might be Cheers, which I'm watching right now, and kind of the Diane and Sam thing. Uh, and last week, we, we kind of left this group of people, two groups of people, really. We left uh, the Magi coming to see Jesus in a town where a man named Herod was ruling. And we introduced Herod. It's a very important character for you. It would be like Sam in Cheers. Uh, you need to know about him. He is, he is like a, a tyrant. He is a jerk. He kills people over and over and over again in his reign in order to keep and to continue his power. And he calls himself, this is really, really important, King of the Jews. And the Magi, this group of people from the east, another group, have followed a star into Jerusalem where Herod has his reign. And they show up on the scene expecting to find this baby that's been born king of the Jews, but nobody seems to know what they're talking about. And so they're walking around going, hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? And maybe it's not like as easy to tell kind of the tension and, and the cliffhanger of this, but really what's going on is pretty, it's pretty intense because now Herod is going to hear about this and somebody is going to pay because somebody else is being called king of the Jews. We left it there last week, and, and we pick up in Matthew 2, 3 today, and it's not surprising what we read in this first verse. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, the word disturbed I, it probably isn't a strong enough word. I would imagine that, that Matthew is making it a little bit nicer than it probably was. We could say a lot of other words, furious maybe, angry, really, really mad, something like that. Uh, but, and that's not surprising because we know Herod kills his own kids, right? I mean, we talked about that last week. Herod will kill his own children in order to maintain power. He did that consistently throughout his reign. He does not care about destroying people to continue in his position. And so we're not surprised that Herod is disturbed. But what's really interesting What's more fascinating is that all of Jerusalem with him is disturbed as well. Now this, this word, this phrase, all of Jerusalem, specifically probably refers to like all of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem. That's the easy side. But throughout the, the New Testament, especially the book of Matthew, we also see that, that it's a reference to kind of the religious leaders at the time of Jesus. And so to reference Jerusalem, which is like the cultural, religious, political hub for the Jewish people, to reference that city is to reference the people who are in power. You might ask, okay, king of the Jews has been born. That should be an exciting thing for a Jewish person. I mean, right now they're being ruled by a tyrant that's kind of half Jewish and really has no right to the throne. Shouldn't they be like really excited but it says they're disturbed right along with Herod. And there's two reasons, really, that this might be true. Uh, first of all, they know Herod. And they know that when Herod gets upset, when Herod is disturbed, then it means bad things, as I just said, are going to happen to other people. And if somebody is claiming to be king of the Jews, if Herod can't figure out who that somebody is, then maybe everybody 
And all of Jerusalem is going to pay. Maybe he's just going to start killing children everywhere. And in fact, we learn later that he does in a city called Bethlehem. But let me tell you the sadder reality that may factor into them being disturbed and and probably might get closer to really the heart of, of what these people are thinking and feeling. And that is this. These Jewish leaders the ones that we will meet in verse 4, have aligned themselves with Herod. You see, the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus' birth were not in a good place, religiously speaking. They were not sold out to God in any way. Even the, the most religious of people really didn't care about what God thought on issues. Instead, what they cared about was making sure that they looked good, that they continued in power, that they were successful. And so for them, the idea of a king being born as a Jew threatens their control because they are so connected to this guy named Herod. See, for Herod to lose his power is for these guys to lose their power. And so we see here, it's just crazy, kind of the spiritual state of the Jewish people at the birth of Jesus. We see that they aren't looking for what God is going to send. They are looking the religious leaders, to continue to have their power and their success and their wealth and their prosperity that they have had under the rule of this tyrant who's really mean to everybody. And in, in two four, Matthew 2.4, we, we meet these guys. It says, When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Two types of religious leaders here, and it's very important for us to understand them. The first is a reference to the chief priests. And this was a group that was kind of invented through the years. If you were to go back to the Old Testament and read the law that is written there for the Israelite people, the Jews, then you would not find anything about these so-called chief priests. But it had kind of developed this position, this, this, uh, this phrase that kind of encompassed a lot of different things. And the first thing it would have encompassed, this group of people, was the high priest. If you went to the Old Testament, you would find this was kind of the main priest. He was in charge of going into the center of God's presence once a, once a year to offer atonement for the people. He was kind of the head of all the other priests. And there was supposed to be one. And he was supposed to live and, and die as high priest. And when he died, then they would get another one into office. But by the time of Jesus' birth, this position had become so politicized that people were even buying it. They would go to a political leader, maybe a Roman, maybe one of Herod's minions, and and would say, hey, I'd like to be high priest. Seems like a pretty good deal to me. Here's a $1,000. And they'd say, okay, we'll kick the other guy out. That looks like a pretty good deal to us. And so what you had was a bunch of high priests running around. And when they left office, they would still maintain the prestige and the power over the people, and they would still have an important role within what we would now call their church, but they would have an important role in the synagogues and places like that. And so part of the chief priests are these high priests that are running around Jerusalem at the time, kind of the heads of the Jewish church, for lack of a better word. And, and the other group of people would have been like the, the guys who, who ruled in temple. They would have been like the ones who are in charge of, of the service that happens, uh, like kind of I am here, so maybe they're pastors in some ways. They would have been the guys who communicated with the 
with the, uh, the Roman rulers and interacted with them to make sure that the temple was running in the way that, that it should be running after Herod rebuilt that temple. And, and it would have been the secretary of the temple, the treasurer. And, and so you see that these guys are really, for all intents and purposes, the figureheads of God's religion on earth. They are the ones that you would have looked at and said, wow, that's, those are the chief priests. Those are, those are the guys that we are to look And they would have been part of a group of people called the Sanhedrin. If you read the New Testament, then you see that the Sanhedrin throughout Jesus' life and ministry do not like Jesus very much. And the Sanhedrin was a group of 70 people who really were theologically liberal. They didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in resurrection. And they thought only the first five books of the Old Testament were actually God's word to man and they could do without the rest. It sounds like many leaders in the church today. Uh, And these group of people had really become nothing more than political people. Even though they were the figureheads of the church, they were really just politicians who were in power and who were connected to the Roman government. Now, this other group of people, it's also important to understand them. It says, the teachers of the law. And the word actually is scribes. And so, if you were to go back, you'd find the scribes were the guys who wrote down Scripture. And before the printing press, this is how Scripture was passed. Uh, They would look at a copy of it and they would write it. And they would do their best to, to write it down as accurately as they could because it was the Word of God. And so what happens is over time, these guys who have access to some of the only scriptures. It wasn't a Bible everywhere. It might have been like uh, an Old Testament uh, in a town. I mean, that's the kind of access you had to scripture. And they're writing it every single day of their lives for hours and hours on end. And they become really the teachers of the law because they were able to read the law so much. Most of these guys that are under this umbrella of teachers of the law would have been part of a group called the Pharisees. Again, if you read the New Testament, the Pharisees, they really, really don't like Jesus. And these guys were kind of the antithesis of the Sanhedrin. They hated the Roman government. They wanted nothing to do with them. Instead, they were focused on gaining their power through religion and through following the rules, even the rules that they themselves had created. And so these guys are the ones that people came to. They were the people that that the average Joe would come to and say, hey, we're not really sure how to interpret the Old Testament. We're not really sure what the law means here. Can you settle it for us? And these guys would give the answer. It's really interesting, right? I mean, if this is the group of religious people, that they of all people would not have been excited about the coming of the Messiah. And, and this is the really fascinating part. Herod comes and he gets this group of people, all the religious leaders, the, the figureheads of the church, and he says to them, Hey, I have a question. Where is the Messiah to be born? Now it's interesting because the Magi had not said anything about the Messiah. They had come and they had said, Where is the one born king of the Jews? Herod is smart enough and knows the Jewish religion enough to know that the one born king of the Jews is going to be the Messiah, which also translates Christ, if you've ever wondered where Jesus Christ comes from. And so he looks at these people and he says, where? Where's this guy coming? Now this is a pretty fascinating statement for a couple of reasons. First of all, it shows that Herod doesn't disbelieve 
that the king of the Jews has come. Isn't that crazy? I mean, he's not disputing that somebody has been born king. He's just looking for a way to get rid of the one who has been born king of the Jews. You see, Herod comes from a family line that is really closely connected to the Jewish people. They come from the line of Esau. If you know the Bible, there was, a, there was brothers who were born, and one, uh, his name is actually changed to Israel and kind of becomes the lineage of the, of the Israelite people. And the other one was Esau, and, and Esau kind of breaks off, and he's kind of a rebel of a man, even though I really like him when we read about him in the Bible. But, but he's kind of a rebel, and the Jewish people do not mix well with what was once their cousins, and they really have an anger problem. Herod was, was in that lineage. No right to the throne, but he understood the Jewish faith. And he actually would have called himself a Jew in the religious sense, although he would not have practiced it very well at all. And so he says, hey, I believe these guys. Where is the Messiah to be born? And we talked about the Messiah at the beginning of this series, and we just talked about it just really, really briefly. And it's because I wanted to come back to it today. And to understand Jesus as the Messiah... It is to understand him for everything that he is. And we talk about Jesus a lot in church. We, we think that he's pretty important and we celebrate communion because we believe he's saved. And we talked about him as king last week. And, and, and Messiah kind of encompasses everything that's important about Jesus. If you've ever wondered, if you're like a person who doesn't have a relationship with God and, and, and you're wondering about this Christianity thing and, and you're like, why do they like this Jesus guy so much? Then really the term Messiah or Christ really kind of is an umbrella for everything that we really get excited about when we talk uh, about Jesus. And, and let me just give you a little background. The Jewish people for, for thousands of years, had looked forward to somebody who would come that would be sent by God, and, and this person would set things right, not just for the Israelites and the Jews, but kind of for the, the whole world, for all people, the Bible tells us. And, and so they longed for this guy who would come, and, and really Matthew has already introduced to us some of the aspects of Jesus' nature, that he's king, that he's come to save people. That he has come as God in human form. It's actually God come to us to reconcile us to himself. But just the word Messiah, just that title, is very important. The word actually means anointed one. And that's where it comes from. It isn't without meaning. It became Jesus' title. We know him as Jesus Christ. But when you say Jesus Christ, you're seeing, saying Jesus anointed. And if you were to go back and look through scripture, you find three groups Three titles, three positions that are anointed. The first one is king, something we talked about last week. But, but let me just let me read you, and I, I found actually just on the internet, a guy that described this very well. And he said this, A king is someone who has authority to rule and reign over a group of people. Jesus is just such a king. He is called the king of the Jews by the Magi, and Jesus accepts that title in Matthew twenty-seven eleven. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Matthew 21, 5 speaks of Jesus and said, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. And so what we talked about last week remains true in this title, Messiah. Jesus is king. Maybe you let something else rule your life, but the truth is, Jesus is ultimately king over everything. Everything. Even you. You may reject him, you may turn your back on him, but still he remains your king. 
He is the ultimate authority. We should listen to Him. We should submit to Him. We should bow before Him. We should respect Him. We should love Him. We probably should not use His title, Jesus Christ, in a derogatory way. And ultimately, we will submit to Him. Now, the second thing about this Messiah, this anointed, is that prophets were actually anointed in the Old Testament. And a prophet is someone who gives God's perspective on something. Now, sometimes they tell the future and they say, hey, God is going to do this or this or whatever it might be. But, but really what they're about is saying, this is what God is like. This is what God thinks. This is what God wants you to do. And so Jesus, being in his very nature God in human form, when he walks around on the earth, he is the perfect prophet because he doesn't just say, this is what God's like. He shows us what God is like. He doesn't just say, this is what God says. He talks, and we see what God says. He doesn't just say, this is what God wants you to do. He shows us what God wants us to do, and then tells us by walking around and teaching and preaching to his disciples and all the people on earth. And so we see in Jesus, not only is he king, but he ultimately is the one that shows us what God is like. If you think, man, I just wish that I knew what God thought, what God is like, how he interacts with people, then all you need to do is to continue past Matthew 2 and read about Jesus in the rest of Scripture. The third group, the third title, the third position that was anointed was the priest. The priests were the ones in the Old Testament who offered sacrifices to God for the people's sins. And we see quite clearly that Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of people. But the other part of it is that priests were the ones who went between God and people. And the Bible tells us that now we only need Jesus to do that. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. We have access. This This is very important. We have access to God because Jesus came to earth and now sits at the right hand of the Father as our mediator, as our go between, between us and the Father. Just Messiah Christ. I mean, when you hear Jesus Christ, it's so easy to make it his last name, right? I mean, there's not going like I bet like 90% of the people in the world are like, if you went up to him and said, "What was Jesus' last name?" they'd be like, "Oh, I know that. It's Christ." I mean, it's on everything. I mean, that's that's an easy one. And uh, I mean, if he was like if you were alphabetizing him by his last name, he would be in the C's or something, you know? I mean, uh, and that's how we think of it, but it's so much better than that. I don't care what Jesus' last name was. Forgive me, Mary and Joseph, but I, I don't care what Jesus' last name was, but I do care about who Jesus was. And, and in that one title, Christ or Messiah, however you want to say, one's Hebrew, one's Greek, we see that Jesus is king, and we see that Jesus is prophet, and we see that Jesus is priest. And that makes him very, very important. I mean, it's easy, it's easy to reject Jesus Christ when that's his last name but when it's Jesus the prophet and the priest uh, and the king of the world then you really if you're being honest with yourself and you're being honest with your soul then, then you need to consider deeply how you interact with Jesus this baby that was born 2,000 years ago. Matthew 2, 5 says, In Bethlehem, this is their answer, In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. It's so interesting. They know. I just, 
it's 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 all I'm laughing a little, but on the inside it's a little like kind of outrage. Like they know that the Messiah has been born, this one that for thousands of years their people have looked forward to. Oddly, the Pharisees had actually been the group that had really excited people for the coming of the Messiah. And now they know where he has been born. But they don't care. I mean, they they don't do anything else. This is the end of the, the religious leaders in this part of the story. I mean, they just answer the question and then go back to their business. They go back to their temple work. They go back to their worship of God. They go back to teaching people what they need to know about God. That's it. But the other important part of this is is that this is what the prophet has written. And one of the key things that Matthew is trying to do in this book is prove to you and I and to his first readers that Jesus really was the Messiah. And this is no more true in all the book than in the first two chapters and we talked about his genealogy and we talked about how he was in the line of David and we talked about how he was born to a virgin but right here in really the rest of chapter 2 of Matthew Matthew just blows us away with the prophecy that Jesus fulfills I need to read you just a couple of longer sections we'll put them up here Matthew two thirteen through 15 when they had gone an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream that's referring to the Magi when the Magi had gone An angel appears to Joseph and says, Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew two nineteen through 23 says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Jesus fulfills three prophecies in his very early days of life that almost would have seemed impossible To fulfill. I mean, Jesus, if I said a baby's going to be from three different places, you would look at me and be like, that's that's probably not possible. I mean, they got to kind of be from one place. It would be akin to to me saying Jesus is going to be from Portland, he's going to be from Salem, and he's going to come out of Canada. I mean, you would be like, how's that all that? That's a lot of traveling, and, and maybe it's easier today where we have freeways and things like that, but for a, a person living in, in that era, I mean, think about, like, you don't just go somewhere else. You don't just like, hey, I, I'm taking a job in L.A., so, you know, we're going down here right now. Oh, I want my kid to have dual citizenship, so we're going to fly somewhere else for this birth. You know, that doesn't happen. I mean, you're like born and raised in one community and you stay there forever and ever, and then you have babies there and they stay there forever and ever, and, and they'll die there too. And I'm sure if, the, if they would have been really paying attention, they'd be like, this is impossible. You know, like, this guy can't be from three places. I mean, Egypt, and he's going to be out of Bethlehem, and he's also going to be out of Nazareth. Like, eh, that's not going to happen. And Jesus does that. And it's mind-blowing to see how many uh, prophecies Jesus fulfills in 
his lifetime. This is what they say. If Jesus were to fulfill just eight major prophecies, the chances of that would be one to ten in the seventeenth power. And it is said, if you were to go back and look at the Old Testament, where God says, this is what my son, my Messiah, the king I will send will be like, that Jesus actually fulfills 60 major prophecies. Sometimes that number gets like exaggerated because he also uh, fulfills about 270 like ramification type prophecies. They kind of offshoot prophecies to the other prophecies, these big ones. But if Jesus was to fulfill just eight of them, just eight, and he did 60, just a 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is, just in case you were curious, 1 in 1000000000000000000000. The chances that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. This is how it's said, and I've said this before, but it's the same as filling Texas with with silver dollars two feet high, the whole entire state. That's about that number right there. Silver dollars two feet all the way across the state of Texas, which is huge, right? And so statistically, the chances of Jesus being able to fulfill the prophecies that he fulfilled are the same as sticking a blindfold man in Texas with two feet of silver dollars all over the place, and he grabs a coin with a mark on it on the first try. If you are betting against Jesus being the Messiah, then you are betting against those odds. And you say, well, that can't happen. Sure, that can happen. I'm okay with that. We can agree on that. But if I was a betting man, I would not bet against Jesus because of those odds. It really takes somebody who wants to stick their head in the silver dollars or somewhere else uh, to, to really go, uh, yeah, whatever. So he was able to fulfill some of those prophecies. It's just simply... Not mathematical to do that. I mean, the truth is that this guy named Jesus who was born 2,000 years ago, whose birth we celebrate during the Christmas season, was in fact the one that had been promised for thousands of years. And if it weren't for God's hand in his life, it would have been impossible, by every sense of that word, impossible for him to do and fulfill the things that he did and fulfilled. Do not bet against Jesus being the king, the prophet, and the priest that has come to offer you a relationship with God. Matthew 2, 5. Actually, going back, uh, just to just emphasize that one more time. My, my brother-in-law, Matt, you know, some of you know him. He, he loves uh, apologetics. That is the proof of, of, of God. And, uh, and he often says to people, because he's learned, he's getting a little older, he has a child now, and he's learned to start conversations with this when people say, hey, I got a problem with God in this way, this way, and this way. He's learned to say this, if I prove to you without doubt the things that you've asked me to prove, then will you believe that God exists and consider Christianity? And he has said, almost without fail, that people say, ah, probably not. And so he doesn't even go into the argument. And truthfully, with all of this prophecy fulfilled, to just reject Jesus without even a little bit of exploration, just to say, oh, I heard he's not real, or I heard there's some discrepancies in Scripture, or, you know, ah, it doesn't seem right, or I don't want to deal with that, is really, is really just to say, I don't care what's true. 
I don't care what's right. I don't care what has evidence behind it. I reject it. Continuing Matthew 2, 5. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler, will come a rule who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is the specific prophecy. It comes from the book of Micah, chapter 2, verse Five And uh, it's really important to mention that Bethlehem was the place where David was born. And, and so again, Jesus is trying to connect, um, excuse me, Matthew is trying to connect Jesus to David, who was this great king over Israel, whom it was prophesied that Jesus the Messiah would be in the lineage of. But even more important to our hearts and kind of our spirits and, and walking away from here feeling more in love with Jesus, really trying to figure out the real value of Christmas through the story of the Magi. We need to recognize that last part that's not in the book of Micah, and that is that Jesus has come to rule as a shepherd. Now, shepherds can be mean to their sheep, and yeah, I picture him with his staff, you know, some pulling the sheep by their neck, and you know, there's, there's some sternness that has to come along with being a shepherd. But when you look at the New Testament, this is not what is being described when it is talking about Jesus as shepherd. Let me just read you several verses, and they're they're just really powerful about what Jesus is and what he can be for your life. Hebrews thirteen twenty. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep. Okay, so Jesus is a great shepherd. John ten eleven through 16. This is Jesus talking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Isn't that cool? I mean, Jesus is like, hey, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to rule you in a way that, that makes it so that I'll never run away. I, I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. I will be there for you. I will be, I, I will be in a relationship with you like I am with my Father, which is in perfect love and unity. That's really cool. First Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Revelation 7.17 For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Matthew 9.36 When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless people like sheep without a shepherd. I say this statistically, you should take a chance, you should bet on Jesus and you might say, well, Why? And let me tell you just two reasons. First of all, the Bible makes quite clear that it's the only way to get out of hell someday. That's true. But also, Jesus wants to be a shepherd to you. He wants to be somebody who will not run away from you, who will be there for you always. He wants to be somebody who will wipe away all of your tears and bring you joy in the midst of sadness. He wants to be somebody that someday when life is over, you can be in the presence of and you can live in eternal perfection forever and ever and ever. And He will reward you even though you did nothing to deserve that reward as far as He is concerned. He will give you blessing and honor and and will treat you like royalty with dignity and respect. And I know, I know because I have conversations with people, that many of you 
are looking for a shepherd. I mean, in your souls, you're thinking, I just wish that there wasn't, that somebody, anybody, would not abandon me when I need them most. Jesus can be that for you. Or you're going like, I wish there was a way to find peace and joy in the midst of my suffering. I wish that like, I had a dad that I could hug and, and, and he would make things feel better. And I can't find that in any of my relationships. And Jesus is saying, like, I, I want to be that for you. I mean, some of you are like, I just wish that somebody would offer me direction and, and help me along life's path because I, I feel like somebody who's lost and abandoned like a sheep without a shepherd that just kind of wanders through life and I, I just need somebody to help me kind of get direction. Jesus wants to be that for you. Jesus is the shepherd. The greatest passage that demonstrates this is Psalm 23, one that's familiar to you, probably even if you don't know Scripture. And today, I want to do something a little different, something that, that I don't know I've ever done in a sermon before, but, but I, I want for us to read this together because it is so beautiful and so important to understanding the real value of Christmas. This is going to be in King James because uh, if you grew up in the church like me to try to read this in, in the NIV, which I normally preach from, is like a disaster. Uh, and so, will you will you read this with me? Uh, I will start it. Ready? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me lie down green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Very good. I forgot to warn you that, that when you read yeah in the King James, it's yay. Uh, so good job on that one. Uh, this passage of scripture demonstrates everything that Jesus wants to be in your life. And maybe you didn't come to church this morning thinking like, yeah, we're going to look at the 23rd Psalm and really remember the importance of Jesus' birth. But in the idea of a shepherd, we see all of the greatness of what Jesus wants to be to you. Our story finishes with these simple verses. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, where Jesus is at this point, and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now we know because of what we read just a little later in the story that Herod had no intention of worshiping the child because when the Magi escape in a different way because, the God, because God tells him them to, Herod goes and he kills every child two years and under in the city of Bethlehem. Herod wanted to destroy this baby and, and that isn't surprising to be honest with you. I mean Herod wanted to destroy anybody who was a threat to his power but maybe what's more surprising is what I mentioned earlier, and that is that the religious leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, don't care. They don't go with the Magi. They don't seem to be excited. They just hear the announcement of Jesus' birth, and it's like, it doesn't matter. 
And I don't know, I've, I jotted down two questions. Are they scared? Maybe. Are they indifferent? Maybe. I don't know. But they don't go celebrate the birth of the one who has been born king. And what we find is that their indifference, sadly, actually turns to hatred just like Herod. They end up just like Herod. Because the next time that we read of these chief priests and these scribes or teachers of the law is in Matthew sixteen twenty one, And it says this, From that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. Now he must be killed and raised again on the third day. See, their indifference turns ultimately to hatred. We see three groups of people here, pretty obviously. We see, first of all, those who hate Jesus, Herod. He wants to kill him. He wants to get rid of him. And I think there's many people in our world that are like this. They hate Jesus, they hate Christianity, they hate what it stands for. And, and maybe if you're one of those people, then, then you connect Christianity to right-wing politics and you're like, I won't have anything to do with that. Or you connect Christianity to bad science and you're like, I, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. And, and, and the truth is, you're probably not listening to my sermon right now if you fall into this category. But in the off chance that you are, I would say that the Holy Spirit has led you today to listen to this sermon and make this consideration. Is Jesus really the Messiah? And is your rejection because you are afraid, like Herod, to lose something? I mean, maybe you're afraid to lose your political position. You don't have to do that, but maybe that's your fear. You're like, I've been voting this way forever and ever, and, and all those Christians seem like the opposite to me, and I, I will have to switch. Or maybe you're like afraid to lose your success and you've gained and gained and gained and you've kind of done it in a way that, that even though you're not a Christian, you, you kind of think probably Jesus wouldn't like. And, and, and so you're like, ah, if I accept that Jesus guy, if I really make him my Lord and my Savior and my King, then I'm going to have less power, less money, less prestige. Or maybe you're like, I have all these friends and while I, I wouldn't have to abandon them by becoming a Christian, they probably wouldn't like me as much and I really like these friends. You see, a lot of times, hatred comes out in a form that says, well, I don't believe it, or there's no proof for that, or I I just think that those Christians are all just a bunch of hypocrites. But really what you're saying is you don't want to give up something. And while you may not kill people, I hope, you're pretty similar to Herod in your hopes and your aspirations and your dreams. And you're just rejecting because you don't want to give up. Whatever it is that you don't want to give up. And today what I ask, I just really ask that you would for a moment just examine. I'm not asking you to get on your knees and start crying and give your life to Jesus. That would be great. But what I'm asking is that you will consider your motivation for not accepting this guy who who fulfilled the prophecies 1 and 10 to the 17th hour. Just stop for a moment all your, your defensiveness and your anger and your, your, just, your, your just utter rejection and hatred of Jesus and everything that Christians stand for. And just for a moment say, why? What is the real motivation for my rejection of the Messiah? What is the real reason that I am so offended by who he is and what he stands for? There's other people in here and, and you, you don't hate Jesus and 
In fact, you're here this morning, and so you might even be kind of open to the idea. But to this point, you just kind of have like an indifference to, to him. You're like, yeah, that's great. I think he stood for really good things. He, you know, I like the hippie aspects of Jesus. Or, you know, he seems like he was a nice guy. But, you know, I, I don't want him to change my life. And, and you just kind of go about living life normally and maybe you even come here every single week maybe you're part of our church and you show up here every week but as far as jesus goes you're like he's a nice help he's a nice crutch he's he's there for me when i need him i like some of that stuff but you're not like excited about him you're just kind of there and somebody could be like hey jesus is going to show up today over there and you'd be like oh, i got things you just really don't care about him or his presence or being with him or anything about him And really my encouragement for you today is to look at these things that we've learned in the story of the Magi this morning, that that Jesus is the prophet that teaches us about who God is and what He wants, and He's the priest that takes away our sins, but also grants us access to God, and He is King, He's ruler, and He's Savior, He removes your sins like we celebrated in communion this morning. And to really, just, just, just for a moment, just say, Does all of that allow for me to be indifferent? Does all of that allow for me to sit back and say, Oh, whatever, Jesus. You seem like a nice enough guy. Because truthfully, when you think about it, I mean, if you're being honest, you can't be indifferent. And what I find just in life, just at people that I've examined, just in people that I've known, is that your indifference will one day turn into hatred or love and excitement. I mean, you will either end up like Herod or the Magi. You will either end up saying, oh, yeah, I kind of thought Jesus was cool for a while, but I found so many reasons not to like him, and those people at church really annoyed me, and I don't want anything to do with him again. Or you will make a decision to say, wow, I need a good shepherd. I need a Savior. And the fact that Jesus offered all that to me is too awesome to be indifferent about. And then there's others of you in, in our church and, and you are excited about Jesus. And, and you're like the Magi, you've shown up on the scene and, and this is kind of the, this, this, this thing that we're trying to do is say, well, how? I mean, how do I celebrate the birth of this baby 2,000 years later? I mean, what do I do? I'm, I am excited about it, Chad, but I don't really know what to do with that excitement. And what we see in this story is that the Magi, recognized the presentation of Jesus to the world by God, and then they presented it to other people. They are the first people that are not Jewish to show up on the scene, and, and they declare, they present this Messiah to the people who should have known. You see, if we want to celebrate Jesus during the Christmas season, then we must, we must, Present him to the world. And when I say that, what I have, what first thing to come to my mind is like an animosity. And, and it's sad that we've come that far, but this is what I picture. I picture this. Guy says, Happy Holidays, and you say, Merry Christmas, idiot. You know you have that in you, right? I mean, it's like, and really, in those moments, because this is not what I'm preaching or telling you at all, in those moments, you're not really presenting Jesus to the world. All you're doing is rejecting happy holidays. Isn't that the truth? 
And so what I'm saying is not, I'm dropping the Merry Christmas on everybody. It's going to be like a machine gun. I'm Merry Christmas and I'm wearing a shirt that says Merry Christmas and keep Christ in Christmas and I hate everybody else and their holidays. Uh, that's not what I'm trying to say to you. What I am trying to say is that if we want to make this Christmas about Jesus and we truly want to celebrate Him and we recognize His value and we're excited about it, then we must find ways not to reject what the world thinks but to present the truth of what we think. To make sure to declare that Jesus is important and valuable, that He came to save, that He came to be God with us, that He came to shepherd people. And you might have a million ideas on how this can happen, but one thing, that the first thing, is that really, I just, I think in your homes this Christmas, if you could just like make talking about Jesus a priority. I mean, I know you'll talk about like the things you need to get done and the presents you need to buy and how excited you are for family coming over or how much you despise that thought uh, or whatever it might be, but, but, but I think we need to like present Jesus in our conversations. If you have kids, then I would say you need to really just make sure that, that you are, are teaching them the real reason for the, the season. I, and I, I would say this, I'm not, I'm not Mr. Anti-Santa Claus at all. For you right-wingers that hate me now, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I think Santa Claus is cool and St. Nick was a great guy. Uh, and, and it's okay to talk about him, but if he's more important than Jesus in your home, then we have a, a very serious problem on our hands. If your kids know the story of Santa Claus and how he flies around the world, but don't know that Jesus is the Savior of the world who was born to shepherd people, then you might have a problem in your home. For, for others of you, you would just have roommates. And I would say just have a conversation with your roommate. Sit down, discuss Jesus, talk about why you're grateful that he's your shepherd, talk about why you're grateful that he saved you from your sins. Make sure that in your house, wherever you live, you make it a point to say Jesus is going to be presented this season. Jesus is going to be talked about. He's going to be focused on. He's going to be the one that is at the center of what we do when we talk. Another, another way that you can do this is, is, is you can use this holiday season to have a conversation about Jesus. Again, I, just one more time, I feel like so much of what Christians do to present Jesus today is only a rejection of other things. But we should not be rejecting other things as much as we should be presenting something that we believe in. And so instead of being like, hey, I'm, I hate you for saying happy holidays, try to engage somebody this Christmas that doesn't know the truth of the Christmas story. Don't do it because you're mad at them. Don't do it because you think that they're terrible for celebrating in a different way than you. Do it because you love them and because you know how great Jesus is. I mean, I, I think, I can just picture Jesus up there wearing his party hat during his birthday season and he's got a cake up there that's probably better than any cake we ever had and the candles are going and, and his, he would just love it. It would be just a great present for him if you just, you just looked for an opportunity to say like, hey, you know, when I celebrate Christmas, I, I celebrate Jesus and I know you probably know that as a non-Christian, but I, I do that because... Because I love him because he's all these things to me. I mean, he is my king and, and I think he saved me from my sins. And, and if, you, if you reject that, that's fine. But, but that's why I celebrate. I think Jesus would be like, that is the best present I ever got. That is the best present ever. 
And so what I need you to hear in any way that you can do it, I, I just need you to take your words. If you're excited about Jesus and you're like, Shepherd, King, God, Savior, He's awesome, I love Him. What do I do to make this Christmas about Him? Present Him to the world. Present Him to the world. Make known the truth that the Magi understood thousands of years ago. Will you pray with me? Lord, first of all, I want to pray for anybody that, that is just outright rejecting you, that is here this morning, anybody who will listen online, God. And Lord, I, I just, I've always found that there is something deeper. Like with Herod, God, not, not just a, a strict unbelief, but, but an unbelief because of whatever it might be. And, and Lord, just in these moments, I would pray that, that you would just soften their hearts. And, and God, I, I, I realize and I'm thankful, God, that you, don't ever, that you don't ever take away our free will, that you don't, you don't force anybody into a relationship with you. But God, by circumstance or whatever, I pray in this moment right now, that people who have rejected you because of what they're holding on to, power, money, fun, whatever, would let that go. And they would truly examine you. And maybe even give their lives to you today, God. Maybe even say, you know what, I do, I do believe that Jesus died for me. I believe He's the Savior. I believe He is the prophet, priest, and king. And I'm offering myself to Him. And just do that, Lord, in them. And, and for those who are indifferent, and uh, God, maybe on both sides of the, the Christian fence, maybe they are Christians, maybe they're not Christians, but, but they're just kind of indifferent to you, Lord. I, I would just pray that, that this morning they would be drawn back to or back to, God, the greatness of who you are, the greatness of what you did, the, the, the joy of, of really experiencing you and, and the benefits that you offer to our lives, Lord. And then for, for those of us who are excited about you, who want to make this Christmas about you, I would pray, Lord, that we would find opportunities, that you would grant us opportunities, that you would grant us uh, Wisdom to see the opportunities, Lord, to present you. And Lord, maybe that, that, that means to our families and just talking about you and making you really the center and not the presence or the food or the decorations or the family, the center of what we do, but, but instead, God, to make you and your birth in our conversations the very center and the heart of, of what Christmas is all about. And, and Lord, help us to find opportunities with people who, who hate you and people who are indifferent towards you to express why we celebrate. And Lord, I, I just pray that we would not do it with a negative attitude, that we would not just start yelling at people, that when we say Merry Christmas, it wouldn't be because we, we're trying to make some type of political, social statement, but it would be because we love you and because we, we actually are celebrating Christmas out of a love out of respect, out of, a, of an understanding of your value, God. Lord, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are and what you've done for us. In your name, amen.